This podcast is sponsored by eBay Canada. eBay Canada has been supporting Canadian small business retailers for 25 years. With their up-and-running program, you can access eBay's 180-plus million buyers in 190 countries around the world. With up-and-running, there are no listing fees on up to 200 listings per month, and you only pay fees when you sell. As part of the eBay community, you get real-time advice and inspiration and access to powerful selling tools and insights. Go to ebay.ca forward slash up and running, stay local, and sell global. Welcome to Canada's podcast, the number one podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Hi, this is Angela Barnard calling from Canada's podcast here with Kyle Campbell, who's the founder of CTO.ai. And we just had a fun conversation, not knowing whether we should say, you know, this is for entrepreneurs or for developers. And the reality is Kyle is the quintessential developer entrepreneur. So I look forward to talking to you today, Kyle. Uh, Let's start off with, tell me a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me, Angela. I'm excited to be here. Happy and excited (laughs) to share a little bit about my story. So my story goes... Back to an early age, I started getting involved with computers, um, self-taught software engineer and entrepreneur, I always said. Actually, I had a very um, sort of, maybe it's practical in some ways, impractical in other ways, path to where I'm at as a entrepreneur and software engineer. Ultimately, um, the reason I started building software was I wanted to create the ideas that I had in my head. Those ideas started out as any young kid, things like mowing lawns, selling lemonade, (laughs) even the paper boy. Um, and then I started realizing I could do things on the internet. And um, at that point I had a band and I wanted to be a rock star. So I created a website and I started booking bands and, and promoting shows in my small town in Nova Scotia. I'd see these bands and I'd bring them in. So uh, my, my journey started really early on. And, and I think at that time, uh, because I grew up in a pretty conservative place in the world, pretty conservative family, uh, my entrepreneurial uh, ambitions was actually sort of an outlier. And I sort of put them to a side for a while and I really just focused on trying to become a software engineer. And I found my way into that as a proper profession around the age of 18 in Toronto. Wow. Um, I basically just built a website, showed up at a company's doorstep and said, Hey, look what I built. Um, you should hire me without anything on my resume. And I got lucky. I found somebody who really understood how well I had um, taught myself how to build software. And from then I just, did as much as I could to learn from the people around me and was really fortunate to, to experience both software engineering, but also entrepreneurship for some really great um, entrepreneurs. People like um, the Campbell brothers, Colin Campbell and Brett Campbell, no relation, although that's my father and brother's name as well. Um, in Toronto, they started Two Cows, later Hostopia. I, I experienced what an IPO was there at about 22. Later on at places like Blast Radius, where I met some of the most amazing software engineers as well as creative professionals. I actually met my wife there. Um, and you know they went on to be acquired by Wonderman. And then I really got back into the experience um, when I joined a, a company in the Bay Area, founded by a man named Chris Newman, who's also on my board of CTO Today. And Chris founded a company called Data Hero, and he offered me the sort of mentorship I was needing to really cultivate that interest. He uh, you know, went on to be very successful with that, and I took a different path starting a company called Rexley which was later acquired by Zillow Group. And uh, our past reconvened at CTO.ai here where we're trying to um, bring accessible developer workflows to everyone via Slack. And the idea here is that we're trying to make it so that businesses can really benefit from leveraging the software talent. Um, and uh, 
creating exponential value proposition within their team by making developer tools really accessible uh, natively inside of Slack. So would your clients be Slack users then? Absolutely, yeah. So especially in this day and age, um, you know, Slack is sort of where remote communication collaboration is happening more often than not. I spend more time in Slack um, than I do in any other program. And it's also one of the first things I look at in the morning to understand what I'm going to do to start my day. Um, this is true for many, many people. And at the same time, on the so side of software developers, there's never been a time where building software in the cloud um, has been so complex. I remember when I started building software back in the day, it was quite easy relative to today. And so we came to learn that there's about 300 billion lost in software development productivity every year because the tools that software developers use are so complex. And at the same time, companies are having a hard time hiring enough senior talent that they need to keep up with this complexity. Mm -hmm. So the reason we brought it to Slack was to really level the playing field and make it so even you, Angela, could deploy a Kubernetes cluster on top of AWS's EKS in about 15 minutes. Uh, because Slack just really makes so it easy for people. I'm glad I know how to do that. That's right. That's right. That's everybody. Um, everybody who uses Slack really benefits from that that ease of use. And, and so we're trying to rethink what the software developer experience looks like in this new world of remote communication and collaboration. So I'm going to come back to that because I do want to harvest from you a little bit of flow from everything that you just said. But before I do that, I want to go back to you were in Toronto and then you ended up in Silicon Valley. Yeah, so I started my career out in Toronto. Um, I did a small stint in Banff, Alberta as a, as a lifty for half a season. And then I found my way to Toronto. Yeah, found my way to Toronto to pursue a career. And at that point, I really realized, well, what do I like to do? I do like computers and I'm good with them. So why don't I pursue that? And that's where I sort of found my career start. I lived in Toronto mm -hmm. for about five years working at different companies in the hosting industry, um, as well as companies who are building different products and some agencies. And um, I eventually moved to Vancouver to, to work for Blast okay. Radius. While I was in Vancouver working for Blast Radius, um, I met my wife, I set down roots. And after I worked at Blast Radius, after they were acquired by Wonderman, that's when I was really interested in working for a Bay Area company. But rather than relocating to the Bay Area, I thought it would be smarter to stay here in Canada. Um, and because I'm in the same time zone here in Vancouver, it was quite easy for me to tele telecommute in. You know, I travel down there from time to time to meet the team members, but mostly I, I was based here in North Vancouver okay. um, working from home. Well, that's a great, you were a remote worker before remote worker was even a thing. I've kind of always just worked on the internet is the way that I've thought hey, about it. <laughs> exactly. Now, I've had the privilege of a little bit of hacking on how CTO started. And you, you've raised money in the Bay Area, or at least in the U.S., is that right? That's right. So when CTO I started, what it, actually I was trying to do was invest into other startups. And what I kept hearing okay. was, I don't want to take your investment money. What I want to do is hire you as our CTO to help us with our software development team. And that sort of led me to this sort of um, roundabout conclusion that companies are struggling with making DevOps accessible to their development teams. Um, and so at that time, I kind of put the investment thesis to the side and I said, okay, what can we do to enable this future that we think can exist? And we started off by providing essentially a managed service-based business where we bootstrapped the business to um, about eight figures in revenue and 60 employees over 18 months. Did so profitably, um, never really took on or spent any investor money. But as I was looking to the future, what I really 
always intended was to build a software company, a product-led company. And what I was trying to do there was validate a couple of things. First of all, can I, as a software engineer, learn how to tap into a market and sell? And is this a big enough market? Is the big enough market to justify partnering with venture capital? And then the second thing was I was trying to wait until the market caught up to my ideas because I learned from Rexley that I was ahead of the market and sometimes takes the market to time to catch up. So Um, Ultimately, when I felt like the convergence was there, um, which was about last summer, uh, yes, we did go on a a fundraising trip to the Bay Area, about three weeks um, of being in, you know, back-to-back meetings, came back to Vancouver, I met Stuart Butterfield on the plane, um, got back into Vancouver, another, you know, many other investors started flying in, and and we ultimately ended up closing um, about seven and a half million USD um, from Tiger Global, Slack, Yale Town, Panache, who are great investors here in BC, um, along with John Bixby from Stanley Park Ventures, who's also one of my board members. And um, yeah, and so that really set us up to really invest into the future of what we think the developer experience is going to look like. And can you describe what that developer experience is going to look like? I can try. I think part of the thing okay. about the future is none of us really know. Of but- course. You're part of the designing the future. Part That's of it, right. So. What I would love to see is I would love to see these complex systems, things like AWS or even Kubernetes, like I mentioned earlier. There's a lot of this really powerful and important technology. Um, I, I'd like to see it sort of fade into the background. And I'd like to right. see the average um, individual be able to find a career in building ideas on the internet. And I think with the rise of things like the bootcamp, what we really need to invest into is a more accessible, transparent, um, and observable developer experience. Because ultimately, what we're trying to do is change the face of DevOps, which is thought of as developer operations. And the founding principles of DevOps are ideology, best practices, and tools. And the way I think about it is you take your ideologies or your ideas, you form best practices, and then you immortalize them in tools. And when you do that, you deliver that tool to that developer who comes after you. Now you're creating what we think of as a 10x scenario for software development. That's one person who's enabling five other people to be two times more productive because that person can potentially leverage my experience over the last 15 years. You know what? That's the first time I've heard that 10x, right, which is exponential impact simplified into something so simple. So thank you. Well, okay, keep there, going. There, there's some <laughs> things here in software development, um, often some really sort of negative associations with this idea of the 10X developer perpetuated by, you know, HBO sitcoms and, you know, VCs who tweet about the 10X developer who's this disgruntled person who sits in a corner and just does 10X more work than everyone else. And, and typically within software teams, um, that's not the person you actually want on your team. What you want is the inverse of that. Somebody who's enabling others Um, and taking Mm -hmm. their experience, using that experience to provide a platform for the success of their team. And and that's where I've tried to reclaim that term 10x software engineer uh, and reposition it around what I think is a more productive use of how we think about the future of software development. Because, you know, what I really want is for my son, who's three and a half to get to 18 and be afforded those opportunities that I was to participate in this great thing that we have called software development on the internet. Tell me, can you, and you might not be able to share too much here, no, forgive me if I'm wrong, but can you share some experiences of what you're producing on the other end, using software development, Slack, and those, those are tools. What, is, what are the end products? What are some of your customers and what experiences are they creating? 
Absolutely. We're a platform or a framework for those development teams to um, adopt their own workflows. And so the question is, what kind of workflows are they building with our products? We have a a large and vibrant community of hundreds of developers who join our free Slack group and and ideate on these things and come with different ideas. We're seeing everything from people building um, a set of tools to enable their support team to look up errors in production systems so that they can more quickly respond to customers. We're seeing developers do things where they're automating what's called the continuous integration and continuous development process. So that's the process of releasing software to servers in the cloud so that their customers can see the products. Um, I just did a demo the other day, which was tailored for data scientists. And it showed how you can very easily spin up a powerful data science toolkit on top of Amazon in about five minutes, where otherwise it would have took you potentially weeks of learning on how on all of these specific technologies. So it's quite custom often. And, and the sky's really the limit in how you can use these tools to develop software within your own team. But the general idea is companies are already doing this, but it's quite expensive for them. There's a high cost of ownership for the tools that you need to implement to enable your software developers. And in a business, you're hiring more software developers. And often you're hiring software developers that are earlier in their career because that's where there's more availability in the market. So the question you have to ask yourself is how can you refine the tools that they're using to help them Mm -hmm. be more successful? Mm -hmm. Because if they're successful as an entrepreneur, you're going to see more value delivered to your customers. So it's quite unique. And and there's a lot of different ways that people use it, but it generally is focused on streamlining a developer's ability to connect to many different systems and rationalize some complex process in minutes um, in a shared environment like Slack, where everyone on the team can learn, oh, that's how we accomplish that. And now that knowledge transfer is really organic. And is there any particular sector that naturally gravitates to this? Yeah, we think of the sector as sort of software development in general, right? So we have people who are in, in the financial space who are using it for financial pieces yep. of their workflow. They really like the observability and the audited ability of these workflows that are running in Slack. Then they know exactly how people are interacting with their systems and they have a clear audit trail. Um, there's other industries that we have, you know, like real estate where people are doing things in real estate that have to do with data processing. Um, you know, there's lots of data processing that happens in real estate. And often if something goes down behind the scenes and you don't know it went down again, you don't have that observability. It can be pretty costly for your team. Um, another use case that people have, um, which is in sort of just the general technology sector, is they're automating their incident response. So, for example, is that data pipeline goes down and you need to wake somebody up at 2 a.m. How do you run that workflow that raises this to the right people as quickly as possible, but also gives them the context they need to solve the problem and hopefully go back to sleep quite quickly? So, there's a variety <laughs> of use cases. And, you know, we look to refine these um, over time. We're definitely aiming for development specific use cases, but we don't want to limit the creativity of our users um, and our customers. And there's sort of a balancing point here between our our community and our open source users who are coming in and they're participating and they're sharing these in a public registry where everyone can benefit from it versus our commercial customers who are looking at this through the lens of their specific business. And let's talk a little bit about that because um, I know in our our first sort of conversation, you talked really, you have a social purpose here, as well as the enterprise side of things. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Social purpose. Remind me which one. Well, I've, I've got a few. It was, <laughs> maybe we share all of them, but it was, I remember you talking about, you know, having that open source 
you know, creative platform for people to be able to create outside of a job or an enterprise and that being part of your social purpose is enabling that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've learned so much about software development. Obviously, I didn't go to university. I didn't even really complete high school. You know, where else would I have learned how to build complex, you know, high tech software other than out there on the internet through these open source communities where people are willing to share their knowledge and their code so that I could read it, understand it, and then find my own way of creating these sorts of things. So, you know, we've done a couple of things that I think are really important. The first is the Slack community that I mentioned, hundreds of developers who are in there sharing ideas, talking about what they think the future of DevOps and the developer experience is. Um, the other is we created this registry, and this registry is where people can publish their ideas. Individuals can come in, they can build a workflow around a specific set of technologies. Maybe it's AWS, maybe it's GitHub, and they can publish that into the registry so that other people can very easily access that, but also contribute back to it because we have an integration with uh, GitHub and have published many of these examples both from us and our community. So the, uh, the source code for those, our CLI and what is our SDK, or we think of as our software development kits, are all open. Open source means anyone can come and read the source code, understand how it works, mm -hmm. learn mm -hmm. from it, or even contribute to it. And we think that's a really great way to build a business because um, you know we're really building this for our users and our customers, and that gives them a direct line to influencing how the product and the platform evolves. And how do people find those? Kyle, are your registry and your Slack community, is it membership based or is it open? How, how do they find them? Completely open today. So anyone goes to cto.ai, land on our website. Um, you know, there's a link on the website called community, which just asks you for some basic information. We send you an invite and boom, you're in, into the Slack channel awesome. and you can communicate and collaborate. Our whole team hangs out there uh, and it's super fun. We celebrate every person who joins with a, with a lot of high fives and hellos. <laughs> Uh, we like to say it's the friendliest DevOps community on the internet. And then if they want to get access to the registry, there's also a registry tab on the website where they can click in, okay. browse the different workflows. And each one of the workflows will link out to our GitHub where you can actually see the source code that we've uh, written to demonstrate these different ideas. And you can contribute source code back there or change the, the code if you want to. Um, and then the last thing is to actually get access to the Slack application. We're also in this beta where anyone can sign up today, install the Slack application. You need to install our CLI and our software development kit, and then you can start building your own workflows and contributing those back um, so that other people can benefit from the shortcuts that you're offering uh, from your creativity. Thanks. This podcast is sponsored by eBay Canada eBay Canada is powering Canadian small businesses. Go to eBay.ca forward slash up and running to open your new global e-commerce business. Something I want to ask you about, just changing tax a little bit here. You're, you're based in Vancouver right now. And uh, do you think there's a competitive advantage or disadvantage of being Vancouver, British Columbia, Canadian in the, uh, in the software engineering field? I'm in the business of turning my disadvantages into advantages. And so I'd be lying if I didn't recognize that there's certain disadvantages in being in Canada. But I think there's also distinct advantages. I think the disadvantage is, well, you're not in Silicon Valley. Up until recently, that mattered. Now, I'm not so sure it matters at all. But even before when, you know, the, the natural perception was you can only build a company in Silicon Valley. You know, I really looked at that as um, something that I wanted to take a contrarian approach to and potentially disprove. I like a good challenge. 
So what I looked at was what are the benefits of being in Canada? Well, great lifestyle, you know, decent cost of living. You know, we can be a little bit challenged here on the West Coast, but uh, broadly in Canada, there's one of the most amazing cost of livings, especially mm-hmm. relative to what's available to us. Wonderful social programs. And um, we have things like the SHRED uh, grants, you know, scientific research and development grants that come back from the government to help stimulate innovation in our in our economy um, for small businesses where, you know, many people don't know this, but if you're on the bleeding edge and you're, you're doing research and development and you can meet essentially the five criteria that the government lays out for you, you can actually get up to 60% of your R and D costs returned to you in the form of cash money, which you can reinvest into your business. And when you think about it like that, that, that's a huge advantage. I don't know anywhere else in the world where you can recycle actual cash money from the government back into growing your business at that kind of leverage. Yeah. In most places, it's just credits against future tax offsets. And and that's not really a, a, you know, a stimulus per se. Um, So I think there's lots of advantages like that. I think there's an advantage um, up until recently, certainly there's been an advantage around talent as well. You know, there's a lot of people born and raised here in Canada who are, are super smart, who are quite ambitious. um, But you know, there's not as much um, of a tech presence here to compete. In recent years, that's changed quite a bit. And I think what we've also started to see is, um, you know, people from other places, even from Silicon Valley, whether they're companies or individuals start to immigrate here for those benefits that I described. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I do think that there's, um, you know, a a narrowing lens on that. We need to think a little bit harder about what our advantages are here in Canada. But um, I see very little reason why, personally, I wouldn't have, um, a home base here in Canada because I, I take a two hour flight to, well, not right now, but I, I've taken two hour flights in the morning to San Francisco and back at, at 6 PM. And yeah. it's like, it's like I'm, you know, commuting from, from Abbotsford if traffic is bad to Vancouver. Exactly. So, you know, plus you get a meal on the flight and that never hurts. Uh, that never hurts either. Right. And you can still buy beer and flights. That's important. And you can work with Wi-Fi. It's, it's you easy. Right? It's, so yeah. <laughs> it's better than a commute on the car. And I know we, you were going to challenge me a little bit, or at least uh, we were going to talk about the challenge of culture of entrepreneurship in Canada. And, and I think our trigger there was, you know, I, uh, the social, social entrepreneurship here versus maybe other nations. And, and perhaps we're not near as competitive as we should be. What, what are your thoughts on Canadian entrepreneurial culture? I like to say I'm the most competitive Canadian that you may have ever met. Um, I, I thank my family for, for having a very competitive spirit. April Fool's days were interesting growing up. I think generally in Canada, one of the challenges that we, we have to overcome is that, you know, I hear from entrepreneurs all the time, like, what do you think about building a, a, a company in Vancouver? What do you think about building a company in Canada? And, and, and that's the wrong question in my mind. I'm not competing with Canadian entrepreneurs. I'm competing on the internet globally. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think if that's your perspective, then you really need to step out of the idea of relative approximation when you think about your ambition. I think there's a lot of really ambitious Canadian entrepreneurs, but I think generally we have um, a lot of entrepreneurs who are also unaware of what big looks like or what scale looks like. And I think they, they may look at the world like we're competing locally, but I would encourage people to think about it from the perspective of you're competing on the internet. You know, at the same time, I don't worry about competition because competition rarely kills businesses. It's usually bad decision-making, mixed up priorities, you know, um, and potentially, you know, poor financial management that typically will ruin a startup. But I think 
if you want to go out there and compete for funding, if you want to have that advantage over the companies that are built in the Mecca of Silicon Valley, where they're an hour away at most 15 minutes at, uh, at best from Sand Hill Road, where there are literally hundreds of VC offices who have raised hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. in funding, then you need to be willing to get on a plane. You need to be willing to go right. and have those conversations with the people who have been more successful with you. And you need to use that relative approximation in how you set your sights and set your ambitions. Because I think one of the things that we we don't have as much here in Canada are those high-flying outcomes where everybody has, you know, a friend or a colleague who, you know, had options in some successful outcome. And so as a result, you know, people often in Canada just are, it's not that they're not ambitious. It's just that they don't understand how close that opportunity is to them. And when they put themselves in Silicon Valley and and they see just the, you know, people talk about the dynamic and and the culture of Silicon Valley. And we would be talking, we'll pull up our phone and we're thinking, who can I intro you to? You know, what do you need? How can I support you with that? There's a cohesion that starts to foster there where it's kind of like a hockey team to make it in, in Canadian terms, right? Hockey team is competing with the other team, but also the players on the bench are trying to, they all want to score a goal. They all want to come back to the dressing room and have the most points. So, you know, they'll pass the puck, but you know, everybody wants to put the puck in the net. Right. And I, so one of the things I want to bring that back to, you named off, uh, you know, Tiger, Panache, you know, some, some big name investors here. So there are private investors, investment firms here in Western Canada that when, when you said those names in our first call, I'd never heard of them. So that might be one of the limitations, right? Is people don't know how to scale or what what's out there as far as opportunities to scale. Could you touch on that? Cause you were looking at investing yourself. Absolutely. I, I think often what happens in Canada, especially in non-major markets, so say markets that aren't, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, and I mean, obviously there's more, but let's just stick with those two. Yeah. Um, I, I, especially outside of those market, there's typically what I would think of as, um, you know, large fish, small pond kind of scenario where on average, you're going to have a very small number of people who are willing to allocate their capital in a tech capacity because, you know, there isn't, there isn't, you know, we're not talking, you know, very outsized returns are small, right? The way venture capital works at the end of the day is you have, you know, 10 companies that you invest in, one of them makes a hundred X and other nine fail. Like that's generally how venture capital unit, it's, it's, I would like to say it's kind of the poorest unit economics in in tech. I I think first things first is you have to understand what those incentives are from a venture capitalist. Then you have to understand what the incentives are for an angel investor. Now, the thing in Canada is you're going to have an easier access to angel investors often, but there's often less access to venture capitalists. There are strong venture capitalists in in Vancouver, in Calgary, and Mm -hmm. certainly in Toronto, Um, you know, to name a few, Galetown here, Galetown Partners, you know, Eric is great over there, who's who's our partner, Uh, Panache, Patrick Lohr, who's been involved in 500 startups and you know, they've made 150 investments around the world, a lot of them in Canada. Um, and then in Toronto, you know, I really love what Round 13 and, and, and Bruce Cochran are doing and Craig over there. Uh, there's just really great investors. Now, if you want to get their attention, if you want to show them that you're going to be that outsized return, then it doesn't make sense to stay in the small pond, jump into the big pond. And so 
this is what I'm saying is like flying down to San Francisco and spending some time down there, you know, Mm -hmm. under normal circumstances, you can create a lot of conversations really quickly where not only can you draw in interest from people who have invested into the major tech brands and bring with them that experience, you can leverage that experience just to understand how big of an opportunity you actually have. And often what that will do is it'll actually increase your perspective. It'll, it'll improve your perspective. And, and more importantly, it'll test your resolve and your confidence about how well you understand your business. So when you come back to Canada and you're speaking right. to these investors who maybe haven't had that experience, well, it's the equivalent of swinging two bats in the, in the, um, in the batter's box. You know, you're going to be well-versed in what are the questions yeah. that they're going to ask. And you're going to understand the differences in, in perspectives based on um, the risk tolerance and the capital deployment strategies. VC is a business like any other business. You just really have to understand what are their interests and where do they position themselves in the market. And right. what's been very true about VAC is it, is it isn't evenly distributed from a geographical standpoint. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you have to be willing to get on a plane if you want to be successful in building a you know business required which requires investment uh, from angel investors or even venture capitalists. But you know, beyond that, and that's just the capital side, which I don't want to pretend like that's the priority. Really what you're looking to do is finding people who have stronger experience than you do that understand what great looks like. You know, I had the benefit of talking to somebody in San Francisco for an hour named Alex Bard, who, you know, don't quote me on this, but Alex is a partner at Redpoint, sold a few businesses, you know, very successful at Salesforce. I think doing something like, you know, billions of dollars in revenue. And how often do I get to talk, sit down and, um, you know, talk with somebody like that and see what they think about the business that I'm trying to create. I mean, there's very few of those opportunities that exist in Canada. So I think you're trying to export that ambition. You're trying to export that experience out of these other markets and and Silicon Valley is just one of them, right? But you're trying to export that and you're trying to bring it back to Canada. And if you're doing that, then you're, you're taking the global, you know, market and you're saying, look, here's how I localize it and apply it to my advantages here in Canada. What does great look like for you? Well, you know, I think personally, great looks like optionality. Um, my personal values are autonomy, purpose, health, and family. Because I believe that if I have autonomy to pursue my purposes, you know, and as long as I and I can be able to stay healthy, I'll be a great husband and a great father. You know, I'm really focused on the autonomy, purpose piece, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. I'm constantly trying to play those into health. Uh, and family for the long term. I think really long term. What success looks like to me is building a business that is very meaningful, that can help um, software engineers be really successful in their careers. Um, it has that impact of me giving back to people in the opportunities that were afforded to me, hopefully on a much larger scale. And then potentially just personally turning that into an opportunity where I can focus on the things that uh, matter and make bigger splashes in smaller ponds to come back to that, that quote. I, I think, um, you know, you have to give yourself a bit of hype in this too. Like I, I think if you want to achieve outsized outcomes, you really have to sort of have that perspective of world domination, you know? And so I will often joke, well, what's the goal? The, the goal is to, to take over the world, you know, sort of pinky in the brain <laughs> stuff. Um, but that's p- part of that is just setting your, your sights really high it, it, because if you, if you shoot high, you know, you're going to have some relative success. 
Um, and as long as you're not worried about failure, then you're good to go. Uh, I think you just keep, keep at it and stay dedicated and, and you'll find your path to whatever that looks like. I just think you got to check in on it. And, that, and that's why I have the, the personal values because um, I try to check in on those in the same way that I do with, with company values, because it's not just about, you know, it's not just about money and venture capital. They, you know, that's good business. They need to make their money back. You know, all the shareholders in this business have expectations, but really, you know, what I personally am driving for is how do I help as many software developers as possible be successful in their career? So shooting for the 10 X concept, right? Helping people get to what great looks like for them individually, their 10 X. I think is uh, the takeaway for me in the in the gift that you provided for me today, and hopefully for everybody else that's listening. But uh, so, Kyle, your your enthusiasm is infectious. I am not a software engineer, so I'm not likely to jump on the registry. But uh, I'm looking forward to how do we connect with you post podcast. Yeah, happy to have anyone connect with me. Um, I have a personal domain, KC, like my initials for KyleCampbell.io for Indian Ocean. You can hop onto that. It's a, it's a rather outdated blog of different musings that I've shared. I don't think it's been updated in about four years, but but from there, there's jump off points to to my Slack, to our, uh, sorry not my Slack, to my Twitter, to my LinkedIn, um, and certainly anyone can go to C hop into the community, and send me a direct message on on Slack because, like I said, that's one of the the primary methods I use to communicate with the people that uh, I spend the most time with. Well, I'd, I'd like to put a bee in your bonnet that uh, your original idea of, of investing should potentially be put back on the table at some point and we should connect. <laughs> certainly, certainly. I'm always, I'm always willing to look at good ideas. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, with that regard, I mean, if there are any entrepreneurs out there who are doing things in the realm of software development, that's really the area that I'm the most passionate about. I, I have a broad macro thesis about what the future of software development looks like. And, you know, I talk to entrepreneurs all the time and I don't look at that as anything more than me being able to potentially help. And if, you know, there's a way that I can invest money, I would obviously look at that. But, um, you know, really what I'm trying to do is, is bring like-minded people together and try to share some of my experience that if, you know, let's say if this business doesn't turn out to be the big one, maybe there's well, and that's, um, that's a win all around, right? Awesome. Super enthusiastic. Kyle, I appreciate your uh, competitive nature. Thanks for joining us in Canada's podcast. All right. Thanks so much for having me. This podcast is sponsored by eBay Canada. eBay Canada is here to help. They've been supporting Canadian small business retailers for 25 years, and their up and running program is getting Canadian businesses online today. Visit ebay.ca forward slash up and running. Stay local and sell global with eBay.